keeping those paws silky soft. Dude, I there's so many splits in my fingers. Just look at that. Uh, no, I don't want to look. I'm good. I'm apologizing in advance, too, because without realizing it, this is probably the most stoned I've been for a podcast since we've been doing this. I just took my microdose, and I'm about to start drinking and smoking, so... Okay. Well, go ahead. Start start catching up. Do you have any? Do you have anything you want to discuss? Because like, I feel like I'm locked in on this, but I can probably come back to it if you have something worthy of discussion. I usually snag pictures, like if I'm on Twitter and shit, and I'm going through stuff, and something comes up on my food. I'll usually snag pictures of like stuff that would be interesting to talk about. What did I have? Random picture of my alarm clock. I still can't get over fucking, uh, it just keeps coming back. The, uh, what's his name? Harvey Weinstein's pipe, man. He just got found guilty yesterday, I think. His pipe? Yeah, all I've thought about is his pecker for like the last day and a half. If If his face is any indication, you know what? I wonder if there's a correlation between face and dick. Well, I told you about his dick, right? Yeah, isn't it all, like, weird and fucked up, like his face? His balls are in each one of his thighs. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wait, did we discuss if that was a natural thing? Oh, no, it it was a surgery. I don't know that why. That he had to get. Okay, actually did highlight something. So, FDR once actually walked in on a naked Winston Churchill. And <laughs> when Roosevelt apologized, Churchill said... I can't do it in his voice, but he said the Prime Minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the President of the United States as he was stepping out of the bath. That's disgusting. Just I think of having, having, that's right, that's got to be what? Mid-war? Yeah. Probably, yeah. Yeah. You're at war and then you have to see Winston Churchill's just pasty. Pasty body, even in his, his overcoats, he does fat, not appear to be a. He probably had a cigar in a his fit, mouth. He too. probably did. So I want to do an exercise because I find this very funny. I want you to see um, when I read you these names off. If I read you the names of these characters, I'm going to save the star for last. But if I read you the names of these characters, can you tell me? what ethnicity this movie was. Okay, so, you're going to read me the name of the character, and I have to the, guess their ethnicity. The actors. Okay. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. Like I told you, I'm kind of stoned. What, what are you asking me? I want you to see if you can guess what this movie would be by the names of the actors. Okay. Um, Susan Hayward, Agnes Moorhead, Thomas Gonzalez, John Hoyt, William Conrad, uh, Peter Mackinos. Where's the guy I need? It sounds like an old Western or something. Yeah. I recognize those names. You would from think, like the- right? And uh, the main star of this is obviously John Wayne. Yeah, I would think. The, or it, was it the weird Genghis Khan movie he made? The Conqueror. Was it a good Genghis Khan movie he did? Genghis Khan. There is one Asian Listen man. in here. The name is Genghis Khan. There's a dude named Thomas Gonzalez who played Wang Khan. <laughs> it's like, and this movie was made, obviously it was made in 1956, but there's only one Asian dude in the entire This is actually cast. kind of like, online, this is kind of like a 
like a hidden kind of joke thing that he played Genghis Khan yet made no effort or anything to be anyone but a John Wayne character. I don't think he could have. Like I don't. I, he always played the same voice. I'm the, and the leader same of the Mongols, Pilgrim. Yeah. And I would say old westerns. I think Clint Eastwood. I obviously Clint Eastwood's like spaghetti westerns that he did. He pretty much. Do you know what spaghetti westerns are? Do you know why they're called spaghetti westerns? Because you used to sit down every Friday night and eat a spaghetti dinner and watch a western. No. There was this. Um, like, subset's probably not the right word, but there was this era when all these Western movies were made. They were all paid to go over and make these movies in Italy, and they were paid a shit ton of money. That's what a spaghetti Western and is? And because they were, yep, like, fistful of dollars, like, all of these really well-known, like, Clint Eastwood movies. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. I don't know if it's, like, but he plays the same character throughout, like, the course of a lot of these movies, I think. Pretty much But a, a ton of these were actual, like, Italian finance movies. So they called them the spaghetti Italians westerns. financed them too. Yeah, Holy that's why shit. they went over there because they would pay these stars a ton of money to oh. come over and film their movies. So it wasn't, I guess, probably back then they weren't. It wasn't like American directors for, like taking them and going over yeah. and filming. Like, why would you film the Wild West in Italy? It's right. You could fucking drive outside <laughs> L.A. and fucking find something suitable for that. No, yeah, they would hire them, hire them away. Okay, last one. Did you know Nintendo ran a chain of sex hotels in the fifties? Which, thinking about it now, Nintendo being a Jap- Japanese company, I'm believing, I believe. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> they would have Nintendo's, uh, Nintendo, Nintendo-themed sex hotels in Japan. I guess when I read that, I was like, bullshit, I never saw any Nintendo-themed sex hotels show up in the United States. Japan? All my, research, all my research. Japan's a wild country, man. They, they do some pretty crazy stuff. They have vending machines for goddamn pretty much anything. I watched a, I think it was like a 45-minute video, um, not a brag, of a... Did someone just go around and buy different things out of Japanese vending machines? No, it was like a ferry from, I want to say it was like Osaka to Okinawa or something like Mm -hmm. that. It was like two days. The entire meal system for the whole entire ferry was just out of vending machines. Mm-hmm. You would order the butt or you would order what you wanted, and it was everything from like ramen to like they had lasagna and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Then you would take them over to these microwaves. <coughs> Excuse me. You'd stick them in the microwave. You would press the corresponding button that it, you it would used. scan it and tell how long or how long. Yeah, the and it would just do heat. it exactly for you. But they had everything from like milkshakes, like sodas, everything coming out of these vending machines. You can buy women's underwear, like used women's oh, underwear in vending yeah. machines. You can, mm-hmm. Of course, cigarettes. I think you can still do that in America in casinos. I'm trying to think if I, last time I was in Vegas, if I noticed. The air filtration systems in there are so good. I think you can smoke in there. Oh, and mm-hmm. they haven't. No, no, no. They have now slots in certain sections. Smoking, and it's a smaller section now. Really? And we were at the Mirage, which is not like a newer casino. So I'm guessing in the other ones, like the newer places like Bellagio and... Win and all that stuff. They probably don't allow smoking. It's sad to see a bastion of the old times falling like that. I don't even... I I despise the smell of cigarettes. I I, fuck, man. I remember from when we did the Vegas episode, seeing the images of, like, the fucking table games in the pools and shit. all the time. And there's casinos all over. I'm sure that's probably just a strip thing. There's casinos you can go to that I'm sure are all smoking. Well, jumping back to, I guess, folding Japan into this... 
today's topic. This one, I feel like I'm going to go like in a lot of different directions because there's a lot of moral questions throughout this entire thing. Yeah, I, I'm along for the journey today. I I did some research, but I, I want to sit back and just... I'm just going to pick your brain. I'm just going to yeah. pick the fuck out of your brain while educating you as well, along with the 15 to 16 people listening. I wouldn't want it any other way. All right, so what we're talking about today is going to be the Manhattan Project. Um, it does, This was on our list to do eventually, but with kind of the release of the new Nolan movie and everything... It seems like a time people are going to be doing research on it. And so why not do that research with us? So J. Robert Oppenheimer himself was a, a large and pivotal piece of the Manhattan Project. But to boil it down to just him is... It's, it's doing a disservice to the whole project as a whole and everyone that contributed to it and what it took to actually make this happen. Just reading through this stuff, man, it's... I don't know how many people even know about the Manhattan Project. They know, of course, about the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But do you I, think there's a, a large subset of people that know that those two things are connected? I think if you were to ask people, what it, have you ever, do you know what the Manhattan Project is? I think you would get more than half of people being like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would say that's One, it's ha- it, it took place long ago, but I don't. Can you think of any, I guess, single, I don't want to call it an invention, but it is kind of, it's the ability to create, you know, this type of destruction. Has there ever been anything that is shaped without being actively used at, on a regular basis, have only been used twice Something it, it, against people? We just basically developed it as a threat. Yeah, but do you think there's been anything that's had more of an impact on the world than that? Because this is a rare circum... I don't know if it's rare, actually. This goes along with the other things we've discussed. The first people to use these discoveries, it's usually military applications. Mm-hmm. And then only then does it find its way into other sectors. So this, you know, the splitting of the atom, the discover, you know, the discovery of, you know, the power of uranium, plutonium, all that kind of stuff... All of that was then applied to making nuclear power plants, nuclear reactors for submarines and for um, carriers and stuff like that. That was all after the fact. It was primarily researched into because it had potential of releasing energy and being used as a weapon. I'd say the treadmill. (laughs) The, The treadmill, and go with me on this, the treadmill may be the one thing that more people have purchased and used for a month and then sold it at a garage sale or on Craigslist or something like that. I'm just waiting for you to tie this back in. Well, we were talking about using the atomic bomb. No, no, what I'm saying is, has anything been invented that is impacted? You're saying that you think that treadmills have impacted the world. I think they have, and then they were just kind of put off to the side because this whole thing, we've... We've only dropped two atomic bombs mm-hmm. on someone with that, like, sans testing. Yes. We've only dropped two atomic bombs two total atomic since bombs, 19- Only two have ever been used 45? against 
at, ag- against a populace at all, against humans. I want to say it may be in the process, but or I think it happened right after this. Didn't the United Nations like outlaw the use of? It's atomic not really. Weaponry? It's it's fucking. It's murky. Well, it's the United Nations. It's like what it, are they going to do? Like as soon as they were used, even people that participated in the Manhattan Project, high-ranking people, came out and was like, "Don't fucking use this anymore." They had instant regret about it. Okay, let's I'm get right back to too. let's let's go let's go back to the start. So, the Manhattan Project, it was its goal was to produce the first nuclear weapons. That was its sole goal. It was a joint project between the United Kingdom, Canada, and it was led by the United States. I'm pretty sure it's probably led by the United States simply because England was in an active war zone with Germany, and to be able to go ahead and have the secrecy and everything like that. I think it made sense to let the United States, who our territory was not involved in the war whatsoever, to go ahead and kind of research that. And we had more resources just at our disposal. Yeah, the Canadians were pretty much focused on maple syrup still, probably. They were using that during the war, man. I I love... Did you know they fashioned their tanks to actually run on that? That Maple syrup? That sweet northern gold. (laughs) That's their alternate Mm -hmm. energy source, maple syrup. But so the project itself was started in 1939 and it grew to actually include 130,000 people and cost in 39 and during the course of the project $2 billion. Well, so in equivalence today, $23 billion on just this project. It was the second, and this is kind of weird to even say this, it was the second costliest single project during World War II. The first actually being the B-29, that super fortress, which, in a roundabout way, ends up dropping the bombs. I think what kind of shocked me about this whole thing is now when we look at stuff, the government never does things quickly. Like, it's everything's a grind, everything's a draw, and I think that that plays into the money Not if it's benefiting the government. Yeah, but, like, even to build, like, a warship or something like that, it's going to take years. It took... A long time to Yeah, build, but that's like, that's just because of the time it takes. That's not due to like hold up and labor. You can only do so much on a ship at at one time. I just uh, and have so many people specialize doing that and you know, make it quality. Well it, it just keeps coming up in this whole thing. Like this started August nineteen thirty nine, somewhere around Yeah, there. it was thirty nine. And December nineteen thirty eight, Otto Fersch confirmed nuclear fission. By splitting a uranium or splitting a a chunk of uranium into two isotopes, it, the uranium two thirty eight and two thirty five. I don't know if it was uranium that was done at that point. I think it was nuclear fission was discovered, like you said. It was Otto Hahn, and then his buddy was Fritz Straussman. I want to make sure people are getting their due. Um, in thirty eight, and its theoretical explanation made weaponizing it as a bomb theoretically possible. There's a lot of theoreticals throughout this whole type of thing, yeah. and then they make them real. They're all going off theoreticals at this point. Just the fact that it took less than a year for them to be like, okay, we got this. We know what's going on. And then within less than a year, FDR is like, yo, bomb time. Well, what ended up happening was in August 39, there was this letter called the Einstein. This name always throws me off. It's S Z I L. A-R-D, so it's Zillard, Zillard? Zillard, maybe? Yeah. So it was called the Einstein-Zillard letter, and it basically told the United States of possible development of an extremely powerful bomb by Germany. 
because they had been working on it too at that time. Germany, Germany was aware because of the discovery being made by a German scientist that this had applications as a weapon. Well, and all the German scientists that escaped Germany prior to being locked up, all the Jewish scientists and everything had to have had knowledge of this coming over. That's to how America. they got a lot of information. A lot of them getting over to like England and stuff and like Great Britain. So basically this letter also told them to buy up stockpiles of uranium ore and then basically to accelerate um, Enrico Fermi, his name pops up a lot, um, his research on nuclear chain reactions. I'm going to keep stopping and kind of focusing on certain things just because they kind of really fascinate me. I completely underestimated when we were able to go ahead and start viewing like atoms and working with atoms and knowing the difference between different protons and electrons and different um, compositions and how they had more nuclei or less, you know, electrons and all that kind of stuff. How at this point when like the automobile was still kind of a relatively new thing, were there people that were able to figure this shit out? I, I assume microscopes. Is that how they were able to see this stuff? I, I don't know. That's what that's what's so fucking crazy is we're already at the point when even before World War II where nuclear fission is discovered. Was it just was by discovered, did they mean that they just came up with the concept of it and they were like, Well, everything's made of atoms. Atoms are all made up of this. You would have had to have been able to see the atoms in those things though before. You would have been able to have to see what happened during the reaction because you would have to know because fission. So essentially, we're going to discuss during the technical jargon that we attempt to understand about yeah. this: fusion, fission. Fission is the breaking apart of something. Fusion is when it bonds together. Connecting both together. can create. Both can create the power, the the energy of the explosion. And one can, thing I I just want to point this out: mm-hmm. shock that Einstein's still alive at this point. I thought Einstein was like an 1800s guy. He, I think Einstein was just one of those guys that even from like the age of 35 on, he just had that style. That was his like look, and so he just like you thought it was like Mark Twain. Have yeah, you ever seen Mark yeah, Twain? Yeah, yeah. that's true. Mark he looks Twain. like he's like 75 years old. Uh, when was Mark Twain big? It was 30s? back. Uh, yeah, I can't. But anytime you ever like saw pictures like or photos of him. Big bushy mustache, everything. It covered his features. It was always a black and white photo. And he always looked old as fuck. I think the same thing with Einstein. I think maybe he just developed that look a little earlier in his career. And so that's why he looked like he lasted for fucking ever. I I just, I thought that he was like, I thought he was dead before this. I I didn't realize how long Einstein lived like close to us. Yeah. Well, and so basically after getting this letter in uh, February of uh, 1940, the Navy awards, and this seems really low, but awards $6,000 to Columbia University. And I don't, I didn't write down and really memorize the names of a lot of these scientists and everything because, quite frankly, there's so fucking many of them yeah, dude. that to under, to really grasp who's doing what and everything, I'll know what field they work in for the most part when we discuss certain people. But other than Oppenheimer, and the reason that I think he's, known for this is because he was the guy that was, you know, on the XYZ portion of it. He got those last, he got them to the finish line. Like when you're thinking of a relay race, that last guy crossing that finish line, breaking through that tape, that's the guy that you, you remember. I think part of it too is Oppenheimer, (coughs) excuse me, was a professor at uh, Cal Berkeley. 
He was also very outspoken after this whole thing, too. Well, yeah, but his his work for Cal Berkeley, when he comes over to the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. he brought so many graduate students that worked underneath yeah. him and started to figure it all out. So he wasn't only just the guy. He was the guy that knew the guys that brought the other guys in. Yeah. So that, he, was supervi- he, that was supervising a lot of the guys that made this happen. Uh, he, he played a pivotal role not only in his himself and what he did, but then all the other resources he brought with him. Yeah. And here's something crazy. Out of that $2 billion that was allocated for this over the course of the whole the whole Manhattan Project, 90% of that – oh, actually, sorry. More than 90% of that funding was actually used to build these factories to produce what they call the fissile materials. Fissile materials, basically that's what we're going to be referring to like anything that can break – it's when it's a material that when its atoms are broken apart or fused creates the – basically the nuclear blast. So a lot of it's either uranium or plutonium. And there's the, a, different variations of uranium. The, some don't do this, some do. The, the dummy version of this, the best way that I can explain it is the way that I figured that it made sense to me. When you break apart uranium, these separate isotopes break apart. There's certain makeups in each one of these isotopes that is bound to have fission happen, like will produce energy yes. when neutrons are shot mm-hmm. at it. And then there's other kind of dormant ones that'll just absorb it and absorb it and not put off any pressure or power as yes. it releases. It's like only a small, tiny, and I'll, I'll actually get to that here in a second. So it's sort of like... Um, it's not only knowing what the, the mineral is, but then it's actually knowing what that mineral is made of and being like, oh, we can only use like a fraction of this. So now we have to separate, we have to separate this one mineral from itself into its sub minerals. Well, it's, excuse me, a little bit like making edibles, because if you try to use raw flour to make an edible, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be nearly as strong. So you have to pre-cook it beforehand to turn THCA into THCB and THCB can be digested into your system and get you high. So you can just eat a nug of weed and it's not going to do anything. I don't know if a more apt analogy has been used in a more appropriate setting Uh, to a more appropriate topic. I don't know science. I pot science makes sense to me. That's just, that's a, that's a great explanation of, of what they're trying to do here. So there are throughout the course of the Manhattan Project. Okay, so like I was saying, 90% of the funding was used to build factories to produce this material. Less than 10% was actually on development and production of these materials. So it took so many resources to actually develop tiny fragments of this usable material. It's insane how much stuff they went through to try to just get these tiny little amounts of these. And it it kind of goes to show you also when you're thinking about like even current events, when they're talking about like companies trying to develop uranium, usable uranium, it makes you think how technologically advanced they would have to be to do that. Like we did that shit back in like the forties. So these other countries you think would have a much better shot at it nowadays. Yeah, I think it. I think they probably have a decent amount of it. It's just the yield that you get out of it because this you is have a problem to have enough, that we ran into. Yes, you have to have enough of it. And most of the places where it's found are controlled by guess who? So kind of, you know, getting back to the, oh, so, sorry, 30 sites across the United States, uh, United Kingdom and Canada. 
they were all working together to either develop materials, do research, all this kind of stuff. It seems like there were two that really sort of stuck out, though, because there's Los Alamos, where this whole thing was developed. Yep. And then there was one just outside of Nashville in Tennessee, I believe. Yeah, that was Oak something? Oak Hills or... Could have been Oak Hills, yeah. Yeah, it was something like... Oak was in the name. So the one in Tennessee had a big part to play. And then, again, because Oppenheimer, he was at Los Alamos. That was his place. Mm -hmm. So because he was there at the very end of it, when they actually also tested it, I think that's where... And I believe it's called the Manhattan Project because it was headquartered in Manhattan? Yeah, their first offices were were actually in Manhattan. So it truly has zero to do with Manhattan besides this is where the idea started. Yeah, and they're not clever. Again, we've established that not really clever about about names in a lot of situations. But if you also heard the Manhattan Project during the war, you'd just be like... So what are they doing? Is it in Manhattan? It might throw someone off the... Yeah, to to be clear, there was no nuclear testing done in Manhattan. Correct. I'm not going to lie, though. Some of the stuff that they're building and about to do to develop these materials, they're doing it in, like, fucking basements of, like, colleges and shit. Well, that's where a lot of this came from, because, like you said, they gave a grant to Columbia to start Mm -hmm. some of the research. They also gave a grant to Caltech, which Oppenheimer spent some time at, and Berkeley. Well, the first artificial nuclear reactor itself was called the Chicago Pile 1. It was at the University of Chicago. I don't know if it was physically at the campus, but it was part of their, like, this goes to show you also, like, how universities at this time were basically just giant think tanks. Great young minds. Yeah, for development. Willing to push progress forward. And then there was also kind of an operation going on that was with the Manhattan Project during the whole time called Operation Alsace. And basically, Manhattan Project personnel actually served in Europe and they gathered up like new, if like, you know, let's say the Allies overtook a, a German lab or something like that and there were materials that, of course, they're not going to understand. If they were used in for like German nuclear research, this project would be sent in to go ahead and gather these nuclear materials documents. And they also were meant to go into round up German scientists. So it was almost like a pre operation paperclip, but focused on German nuclear scientists and shit. To get into other things that I don't understand that we're about to talk about. um, Uranium just lives forever. Yeah, I guess it, the decay rate on it, because once they get the isotope out of, or not the isotope, but once they get the specific type of uranium extracted, I don't believe that does last forever. So here, here's the thing, because I'm so, going to keep dancing around this. Let me say this part, and then it'll okay. kind of maybe answer a question. So the uranium that, natural uranium, is 99.3% what they call uranium-238. Uranium-238 is, it can't be used. It's completely, it doesn't have that, the, that atom makeup to make it explosive. To, to, it absorbs instead of I explodes. think that's what it was, yes. So that means only 0.7% of natural uranium is U-235, which is uranium-235. And only 235 is that fissile explosive. I'm just going to say explosive because that's yeah. what, it, explosive material. Yeah, it's, it's just a... An eruption of power. It's just explosion doesn't do justice when it releases that much energy, I guess. So to help understand how long this can be around, uranium-235's half-life, which means half of its existence Mm -hmm. before it 
703.8 million years. Yeah. So this stuff, it, all the spent uranium. Is that 238, you said? Yeah, yeah, 235. Oh, okay. So this stuff, if we don't blow it up, that's how long uranium lasts. So all this spent uranium that we've used over time to process, well, think of it. all of it has to be stored somewhere for 7 million years. So wrap your meat helmet around this. That's how much energy that has, that mineral has, that it takes 700 years to expel all million. of... million. Huh? 700 million. Sorry. To expend all of the energy. Half that, of the energy. That's half, half or half life. the energy. Even then, that's how much untapped energy that they're tapping into for something to last that long. And I mean, it's not, it's, it's not doing anything, of course. It's not like running, you know, it's not using its power in an active way, but to still be able to hold, bind those atoms together that have that much energy potential. Well, to be a danger to human beings. I can see it, like talking about this, I can see why there's people that get obsessed with this. Like, how the fuck does that work? Where do we store it after we've tested on it? How because, do we access it? Yeah. If we can access it, can we power sit like... Well, that's where nuclear power plants came from, but all of their waste has to go somewhere, and it's mm-hmm. not just spent shit. They just put it in oil drums or whatever they put it in. Oh, at the they, start, yes. They dig a hole, and then they shove it in a cave. Yeah. So it's just hanging out until under the, the locals start still Until alive. the locals start growing additional toes and maybe a tail. Then they're like, ooh, you think we did that? And get fucking Hills Have Eyes type situations. So, kind of get, hold on, trying to find my spot. I lost it. Okay, so getting back to the Navy awarding the $6,000 to Columbia University. So most of that was spent purchasing graphite. And I don't know what the chemical properties of graphite that make it usable in this situation. I just know that it was very necessary. And they would build the way, one of them that was described, it was a nuclear reactor that they built and the guy was standing next to it. Just the way that they're standing next to it and everything like that, I'm like, that's a fucking nuclear reactor, dude. You guys are being very casual. It seems like they're being casual about this. It was a box, a large box. Think like, I think they said 20 feet by something of graphite. And then surrounded by a box of five foot thick concrete to shield from the radiation. And we're going to get into plutonium. And I know that that sounds kind of boring, but here in a second. And you're going to find out why they needed these reactors to actually turn uranium into plutonium. Plutonium is uranium's slower, younger cousin. Yes. All right, where was I at here? Okay, so the team actually that they gave the $6,000, they created the first fission reaction in the United States. So first fission reaction would be basically, think of it like, um, you know when people talk about those particle colliders and they're basically throwing the atoms and particles and trying to- hydron collider. Yeah, and they're trying to smash them into each other to release the stored up energy. On a small scale, that's kind of what they're trying to do here. And what fission basically does is they're trying to find a way to shoot an atom into essentially another atom and have parts of those, not even the full atom. They're trying to shoot the, is it the protons? Yep. Or it's a neutron. Okay. They're trying to shoot the neutrons into the bundle of protons and neutrons. The ones that are together. It's just the nucleus of the cell. Correct. Which are made up of like usually equal parts of each, a positive and then the neutral. Well, if you can shoot an electron into that, right? Or a pro, sorry, man, I'm going to keep asking. If you can shoot a neutron into that and it, like, think of it like if you're playing pool, you have the tight rack, mm-hmm. you shoot the cue ball in there, break. it breaks apart. You release that energy within that. The tighter it is, 
the bigger the break's going to be. If you have loose, if they're loose and everything, you're not going to get things going as far. That's kind of the, the principle of the whole thing about the fission. Mm-hmm. So they create the first fission reaction. And then uh, Enrico Fermi that we n- mentioned, that name was kind of like the Noriega name. Like I've heard the name Enrico Fermi brought up. I knew he was a scientist, but didn't know what he did. Yeah, no idea. Never heard of him. I only heard, I think I've only heard of him because there was a, there's some type of equation that's like supposed to be named after him that it was maybe a Jeopardy answer or some shit. Well, and Einstein's E equals MC, MC squared plays a huge role in this too. Crazy. Yeah, that just everyone knows that, but no one knows that it's what, what? mass times like acceleration, mm-hmm. and it helps with the force. critical mass and force. Yeah, to actually activate the uranium. So, um, for me at Chicago, he actually achieved the world's first controlled nuclear chain reaction. So, think of it in the sense of what we just described: trying to shoot this marble or this pool cue into the tight rack. Well, what you want to do at that time is imagine now you had a huge pool table and there were racks all over the pool table. And you were trying to shoot when you hit the ball initially to break your rack, you were trying to shoot these balls out and hit all these other racks to cause the same reaction happening. That would be the chain reaction. Chain reactions are going to, of course, all that energy. It's not just one expanding it. If you can get enough of a chain reaction, that's where you get the power of the bomb, the splitting of the atoms. Well, and that's why 235 was such a big deal was because it reacted the strongest out of any of the other um, separated isotopes that they had. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where we'll get to plutonium, but the yield was so little. Like you said, it was what, 99% 239? Uh, Sorry. 99.3% 238. 0.7%, 0.7%, uh, 235. 235 being the explosive one. So for every 100%, you're getting 0.7%, 235 usable material mm-hmm. for this reaction, for this, what will essentially become a bomb. Mm-hmm. You're getting 0.7% yield out of every single time that you do this. Mm-hmm. So, excuse me, to have enough to be able to support a chain reaction they're starting to use up the material more and more. Wait till we get what the efficiency percentage was of these things going off. It's going to blow your fucking mind. Like a bomb? Huh? Like a bomb? Like a fucking bomb. So research is being done constantly throughout all these different sites throughout the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. In 41 at UC Berkeley, scientists actually discovered element 94, which is plutonium. And it's through their research with uranium that they find this. And then in October 41, FDR um, approves the atomic program and puts the army in charge. So up until this point, it's all been research of, can we do this? Like, can we even develop the material necessary to do this? So there's not, that's the Manhattan Project's job is to develop essentially the materials necessary to create the atom bomb. So the army gets put in charge instead of the Navy, because apparently the army up to this point had more experience with these large, like, like wide-spanning projects. The Navy. What's the Navy going to do in New Mexico? Yeah. Well, I mean, there were other places. Yeah, but... but... Yeah. Well, and you know the Army probably be, be, being the longer-standing and having the larger force. Oh, yeah. They probably had a little bit more say in it, I would imagine. Probably had more scientists in the Army than in the Navy. Yeah, Dwight over there being like, give it to us. Yeah. Give it to <laughs> us. Boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
And then around May uh, 42, Oppenheimer is actually approached to take over research into fast neutron calculation, which is a fancy way of saying calculating the critical mass and detonation. So basically his job was to find out what it would take as part of a bomb to release this energy that they've provided the container for the, you know, the uranium, like find, find a way to detonate this and make the biggest boom possible. So you said that was 40, May 42, 42 mm-hmm. from 38 is when we confirm nuclear fission to 1942 is when we've, we're trying to create it in mass. We've now, so in four years mm-hmm. we've come that far to make a bomb. Not to like try to power a city at first or to see what we can do at it to make a but we're but we're a war man. We're just Still. and here's and here's the thing these a lot of these guys fall back on when they've provided information or testimonies or you know whatever is that throughout this whole time this this is that moral quandary that we talk about sometimes where if you're life's ambition, your life's goal is within reach. And someone's like, we're going to give you all the money and funding you need to do this. And you know, I think we did this during the Von Braun one. It was this question. You're willing to put aside or sacrifice your right or wrong. And you're willing to skew that a little bit more because you're getting to create your, your passion and chase your passion to find out if your lifelong work and theory is, is, can be applied in a practical way. Also, uh, like Operation Paperclip, I think it was like our eighth episode or something like that, we run into looking the other way as we did with the Nazi scientists to get us to the moon. Mm-hmm. We just went ahead and looked the other way as communism is a fight that America has waged a full-on war at this point against. Oppenheimer was a part of the American Communist Party. Let's yeah, let's go since this is kind of the first introduction of Oppenheimer coming into this project, which even says something too about how big of an impact he had to have had. He came in in 42 and then runs with it. So kind of going back on on uh J Robert, what was the J? I don't know. Julian Julius. I actually think it might have been Julian. Oh, that would have been a good guess. Ooh, I'm not even going to check. We're going to go with that. Yeah, Julius. So right. he was born April 22nd, 1904. Um, he was born in New York City, and he attended UC Berkeley, and he went to... California his, Institute of Technology. For his doctorate in theoretical physics. Yeah. The man's smarter than I'll ever Here's the thing to be. Here's the thing I found actually kind of the most interesting about him is how many different like disciplines that weren't related to science that he yeah. was so interested in. He was like this weird I don't know, I'm looking forward I'm looking forward to the movie cuz it'll be interesting to see how they display him as a person cuz it's going to be, you know, it's a, of course about the Manhattan Project, but it's going to be about him, but he was someone who really kind of like he was such a master of this, you know, this field that he was in, but he also was very, it's not religious, I don't think, but he had like a, a really big interest in like, um, Indian, what would you call it? Like, um, Hinduism, like Hinduism. Yeah. It was, I think kind of his religion of choice, which is kind of an interesting choice for an American. I think he was first generation Mm -hmm. American. Uh, 
to make that choice. I think his dad is Italian. They may have come from Italy. Don't quote me on that. But it, Hinduism seems like an odd religious choice. It's a great religious choice. I'm not shitting on Hinduism. But it's an odd religious choice for a first-generation American from potentially Italy to come to. Is Oppenheimer... Now you have me looking. Now i got to find out. Oppenheimer doesn't seem like an Italian name. Sorry about that. His parents were... Oh, his dad... Mom was a painter. His dad, Julius... Oppenheimer, a wealthy textile. I love when they say textiles because it can just be so fucking broad. Mm. It sounds like such an old time. He term. may have made T-shirts. He may have made flags. Yes. Who knows? Um, he was actually born in Prussia, Germany. Okay, so he was Oppenheimer. He was yeah. German. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, and his dad came to the United States as a teenager. Wonder if he had an axe to grind with uh, the H Man. Maybe, Maybe that helped spur him into it a little bit. Not gonna lie to you, couldn't it? That's something that, of course, would have to be on your mind. Like, I'm of German descent. We're possibly going to be using this against Germany. I hate what he's done to our country. Yeah, maybe something like that. But, I mean, even from a young age, he was he was basically what you would consider, like, a genius. He's your, he's your classic Doogie Hauser, except instead of in the medical field, he's studying theoretical physics. Willing to bet he probably didn't have a lack of social skills, but he was extremely smart. Yeah. So he basically attended, you know, all the best schools because his family was wealthy. Um, he was a member of this weird, like, ethical culture society or something like that. Um, he was really interested in English and French uh, literature, loved mineralogy, mineralogy, which, of course, I'm sure was useful when he was trying to de- determine these fucking explosives, these minerals. Um he completed like third and fourth grade in one year, skipped half of eighth grade. <laughs> During his final year, he actually started getting interested in chemistry. Uh, entered Harvard one year after he graduated at 18. Um, <laughs> he actually got like, what did the fuck? He suffered an attack of colitis? What's colitis? No, uh, tuberculosis. Oh, it's a colitis. Is, is colitis tuberculosis? Uh, that's all. I know he got tuberculosis because that's why he ended up going to Arizona mm-hmm. at first because it's of the yeah, lungs out. Uh, Doc Holliday thing, right? Yeah. That's why Doc Holliday went to Tombstone. But he was just like, what do you say, Wunderkin? Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a prodigy almost. He. This is how smart he was. Savant, maybe. Yes. Uh, this is how smart he was. So when you went to Harvard, even though you had like a major in Oppenheimer wanted a major in chemistry. Harvard had this required science student thing that they had to study history, literature, philosophy, or mathematics. So they had to basically take like basic core classes. So what he did was he compensated by taking six courses each term and then was admitted to the undergraduate honor society. And then in his first year, he was basically admitted to the graduate study or standing in physics on the basis of an independent study, which basically means that he was like, independent study, fuck you, I can dump all my basic classes. That's how fucking good he is. In the first year, they were like, sorry, we were wrong. We shouldn't have made you take these bullshit classes. Carry on, please. And then he got attracted to experimental physics by a course on thermodynamics that was taught by this guy named Percy Bridgman. Did Bridgman come in? At some point, I think he may have come into play during the Manhattan Project. There's, like I said... There's so many fucking guys, but... Oh, he did graduate Harvard, uh, summa cum laude, in uh, three years. Then, summa goes to cum Europe. laude is number one or number two? Summa cum laude is... Magnum cum laude is 
first. I think Magnum's first, so he was second. Um, let's see. Suma is top one to two, three percent, and then Magnum Magna, Magna is I think Suma is the best. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then Magna's second, and then Cum Laude is is third. Third. Hey, learn something new all the time, right? Yeah. So then he's like, you know what? I'm still a young man. I'm like 21. I'm graduated already. I'm going to head to Europe. But instead of having fun in Europe, he goes there and he was accepted to this place called Christ's College in Cambridge. No, which, that's that's his fun. I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's... That's his vacation. He's like, I'm going to go learn elsewhere. I'm going to go on vacation and go to school. And basically he had some connections because he was so good at Harvard. Um, he ended up studying at Cambridge for a while. And then... I think he ended up, I'm trying to think when he came back. Oh, 26, he left Cambridge for the University of Göttingen under Max Born. Now, Göttingen is is a German school. And again, this is 26, though, so we're not at Between war. wars. Yeah. So this is actually when he made friends with all of these guys. Um, Werner Heisenberg, where, call it to Breaking Bad, it's where Heisenberg, or what's his fucking name in that? Walter White gets yeah. Heisenberg from. Um Wolfgang Pauli, and that's where he meets Enrico Fermi. And he was known for being too enthusiastic in discussions, sometimes taking to the point of taking over seminar sessions. Zero social skills. I think he was just this person that when he was in his element, he could just... That's when he didn't have to feel awkward. He knew what he was talking about. And so he got his doctorate of philosophy degree in 27 at age 23, I don't know if doctorate of philosophy, do you think that actually is like philosophy or is that a science applied thing too? No, it's philosophy. Okay. Just seems kind of weird for him to go to that. I guess he, I guess he already had the science discipline that he wanted. He probably had a focus within, but it was just basically philosophy. Do you think that's what led to just his, his confliction, his confliction with it. And after he did it, like his initial, feeling when he saw the test was like dread. Yeah. He, he recites a, I think it's like a Hindu from the bog Baga. Oh, shit. I pronounced it correctly before. Baga Vagita. It was the, when the Hindu God Ganesh takes like its true form. I'll get the quote when we actually get to yeah. the point of the Trinity test and everything. Cause it's when you say it, like when you read it, the way that the words are structured makes it seem even kind of more despairing than it would be. Oh, if absolutely. It was... The destroyer. Yeah. Yeah. So he ends up coming back to the United States, goes back to the California Institute of Technology, and that's where he's kind of hanging out and everything up until I'm sure he did some other stuff, but he was be... teaching at Berkeley when, the, yeah. when he got the call. Oh, and a couple schools were even actually fighting over him. Like one school wanted him half the year and the other school wanted him half the year. And so he was doing kind of like a switch thing, but he was John Nash. He was a beautiful mind. Kind of like you were saying, he did develop this loyal following of like younger geniuses that were all interested in the same field he was in. And that's who he got to brought, you know, bring on to Los Alamos for, for this project, the tail end of this project. He, is an amazing man. I just, I keep thinking about the movie too and how they're going to portray him as far as like socially and all that. Cause like, he, like he just said, John Nash, uh, Russell Crowe in mm -hmm. a beautiful mind. He was portrayed. And I don't know if it was like beforehand because obviously he 
um, was a schizophrenic. Wow, that was tough. I saw it in my brain and I couldn't <laughs> get it out. But his character was such that he was socially awkward and just had a real hard time in social settings. I don't necessarily think that was so much the schiz- uh, schizophrenia. I think that when you just become so smart, it's like watching Bill Gates do an interview. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates is so fucking smart that he has such tough social skills. But Oppenheimer's amassed this following of kids that want to learn from him. It's that- like a, I look at it like an arm wrestler. Like you, you have this one thing that you're so strong at. So it almost is like it's disproportionately strong to everything else. And because that's the thing that you enjoy and that you're good at, you never work out the other muscles. They're all useless. You have to go talk to somebody and you're just like, uh, I can talk to you in numbers. Yeah. And do, do you, do you talk numbers? It would be, that's kind of the only way it's like speaking a different language almost. Like you have to make sure that this person is fluent so you can talk amongst your peers mm-hmm. in the way that you want to. Well, and the thing too, and this kind of is a testament to how brilliant Oppenheimer was, is that he had, again, he was part of the American Communist Party. And I think his view on communism, again, this is a word that when people hear, because it is synonymous essentially with, you know, Russia and China and everything like that. It's, yes, it's, you know, communism is kind of like saying... It's almost saying like a type of religion, but then there's offshoots of that religion. You get Mm -hmm. to pick and choose. And so their version of communism isn't technically what communism would have. Like, I don't know. Communism is the reason that we have labor part or... um, We have communism in this country. Or like, it's almost like, is it more socialism? It's more socialism, but all of our uh, trades... What's the fucking word? Tariffs? Unions. Unions. Oh, yeah. All of our unions came from communism. Yeah. Like that's, they started Yeah, they're out, workers' unions. Yeah. yeah. So a workers' union is something that is celebrated in this country, but also forgotten that communism was the root of unions being formed to protect workers. And I think that's what his positive outlook on it was. And I, I, I actually believe I did read that that's why he was actually a member of that party. Well, and he, I think he ended up leaving, but he was still donating like $1,000 a year to mm-hmm. their fund. His brother married a communist lady and also became a communist. He was involved with the communist uh, woman, and I think something happened. The his wife, the ones that he ends up, or the one that he ended up marrying, Catherine. I think her last name was Puning. Uh, she was a former communist as well. Yeah. So his he's synonymous with this party at this point, to the point of when they bring him on to the Manhattan Project. They have to fudge his security yeah. briefing to try to That's what get I was getting clearance. At. So it was kind of that. And you got to imagine at this time, like this is, you know, FDR, that kind of thing. The chiefs of staff, of course, they're all going to be more conservative. That's that's just the way that mm-hmm. the it was at this time. So Oppenheimer did have some kind of left-leaning ideologies. But basically the people that were in charge that knew Oppenheimer, that were the ones in charge of picking out these people for these roles, were basically like, no, I understand – how this comes across, but this guy is so, we, this guy is, we can't do this without this guy. That's how crucial he is. And so they finally relented and they were like, fine. So he was put in charge of Los Alamos. Um, when he gets put in charge, this now has become kind of like we discussed, it's become a weapons project. It was always a weapons project, but it was almost from the first part, it was almost a materials manufacturing project. And now it's become, now we know we can make the materials. Let's find out how we can make them into a weapon. 
First, they had to have enough of the materials, though, for plutonium and uranium to actually use for the weapons. So, being that uranium was the key, there were four known deposits in the world at this time. It was one in Colorado, northern Canada, a place in Czechoslovakia, and a place in the Belgian Congo. Three of them, with the exception of Czechoslovakia, were under Allied control. When you say Belgian Congo, you mean the Congo being run by Belgium? Yeah, there was... Um, so Africa? Yeah. Have okay. you ever... Um, do you ever watch Tarzan? The new, the newer Tarzan? It's not a, it's not a good movie. closest I got was George of the Jungle. Okay. Anyway, actually back in like the early 1900s and obviously up until this point, um, it was a lot of colonialism, of course, in Africa oh, yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. But the Congo was actually... Belgian actually had a huge stake because of like mining operations, which explains, you know, the where they found uranium mm-hmm. and stuff. So... Through this, through some like negotiating and everything, and it sounds kind of weird because you would think Belgian Congo, Belgium was part of Germany at that point, had been like, why would they help us? But apparently, like 30 money talks oh, all the time. Yes. So basically, the owner of this mining company, I don't know if he was technically Belgium or just had the mining contract. 30% of his company was owned by British Holdings. So they kind of stepped in to take the negotiation. And we were able to get, um, 1100 oh sorry 1100 tons of and again this isn't the refined uranium this is uranium ore basically think of it this way this is crude oil that we're getting and it has to be refined so we got 1100 tons from the congo uh, 100 tons from canada remember there's 2000 pounds in a ton they got some from colorado eventually and then i want to say yeah, they couldn't get any. Oh, and then Canada, the the place in Canada, the government of Canada owned some of it, and they just kept buying up all the stock as mm. they could. So then they owned it, and they could use all the minerals from there. So essentially, they're buying coca leaves, and they're sending the coca leaves to America to turn it into cocaine. Yes, sir. So there's different... Again, drug science. So there's different ways of the extraction for uranium. And the ways that they try this, this is, I'm going to get kind of boring for a second, but just the research it took to do this needs to be said. So basically, they would take the unrefined uranium and they tried different extraction methods or separation methods. Once they were able to get it just down to the more pure uranium, they had to separate that 0.7% out, the, the explosive aspect of it. So they tried centrifuges, the things that you see in like a hospital that spins the blood. Spin around, yeah. These things were fucking huge. Oh, it would have to be. It's like the the uh, Gravitron at the Yeah, fair. or like Roundup. Kind of, yeah. Uh-huh. So, But the problem they had with this is in order to get these to go fast enough to separate this, they couldn't build them to like withstand the materials that they could steal and all that kind of stuff. They couldn't b- build them to withstand the force. They were able to get very little out of this process. They tried electromagnets basically bouncing the atoms against different magnetic fields, and they had to try to tune it to bounce off certain atoms. Like, crazy fucking brilliant stuff. Uh, they tried using different gases, like ga- they call it gaseous, gaseous separation, and then also like thermal separation. So they, different labs all over. And think of this way, if, if you guys just Google, um, look up Manhattan Project and go to like images, it'll show you all these different places built throughout the United States. These factories are fucking huge, all with the same goal of just doing this. So between these different methods, by July of 45, they had 110 pounds of usable uranium. It was enriched to 89%, which basically 100% would be purely enriched uranium. And it had to, like, think of, like... 235. 
Yes. Well, they, that's what they had. It was, it was, they broke it down from, they had 110 pounds of uranium 235 and it was 87% enriched. So basically think of it like, I guess the best way to think of it, like uh, 89 octane, if you had a hundred was the top. Yeah. Or just in a vape pen. Yeah. There you go. Again, I love where your head's at. I the fact when you were explaining all that stuff, it just made me think because heat and pressure is how you make rosin when you squeeze the pure THC out of a nug. Uh, separating it by gases, they used to separate to make the vape pens that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. They used to use butane, and they would force butane through the marijuana, which would extract the oil. It's all like the same shit. Yeah, we, just, we've just used it in a much better way. One just, you know, makes you feel really good. The other kills m- m- completely melts your body and turns people. you into dust. Yeah. You don't even find the dust. No. They price, yeah. So 110 pounds of this. It's delivered to Oppenheimer Los Alamos. All 110 pounds were used in Little Boy. So Little Boy, jumping forward a little bit, is the name of the first bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And once we get through a little bit further after the Trinity test, I'll explain the different types. Weirdly enough, two different types of bombs were developed and dropped on one dropped on Hiroshima, the other dropped on Nagasaki. Um, nuclear reactors were being built for the production of plutonium at this point as well. So what they would do is, you know how I was describing that reactor graphite wrapped in concrete? Uh-huh. They would take these uranium slugs, basically think of like a cylinder, and everything like a core sample or something it looked like and they would force these uranium slugs into the nuclear reactor and like through a, some process yeah like a dummy cannon round basically yeah yeah and then through i'm not even going to discuss the process because quite frankly it's too smart for my brain but it would through that process it would create small amounts of plutonium so by february 5th of 45 80 grams of plutonium was delivered to los alamos 80 grams is 0.17 pounds well, I think that was the deal was they realized how tough it was to get uranium-235, so then they looked to plutonium to see if it would be a better yield, mm-hmm. and what they got was a shittier yield. Yeah. Los Alamo at this time, too, uh, just kind of getting back to the the speed of how all this came about, Los Alamos in 1943 had around 300 people, mm-hmm. and that was scientists and all that. This became a secret city almost because by 1945, it had over 6,000 people living yeah. there. So in two years, they built barracks, they All built living spaces. And this place, the Oak, I think Oak Ridge maybe, mm-hmm. in uh, Tennessee. Tennessee, they were both, like they had one P.O. box for everybody that lived there to mm-hmm. deliver the mail to because they weren't assigned addresses because they wanted to keep these cities so secret yeah, from the Yeah, they were saying if, if you were a child, and they had instances of children being born because this was happening over mm-hmm. such a long period of time in Los Alamos because it was so secretive, on your birth certificate was just a P.O. box. Really? Yep. I know they said that anybody in Los Alamos over the age of 12 had to wear an ID badge. Because they were, which sounds like security was top security. That's that's why the guy that um, quit and why Oppenheimer was hired, that guy actually quit because he didn't think security was tight enough. He was they, right. Oh, no. And they actually found out after this that there were there was, a, can I say, penetration? Tons. The, the project was just penetrated 
by Soviet uh, nuclear spies. So I'm not saying Los Alamos itself was. It was. A, it was, but I'm not saying all of it was at Los Alamos. No. At different levels. You got to understand when you have 130,000 people as part of this project, you might have some infiltrators at different levels of this thing. It is wildly high, though. Yeah. It, 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 the amounts of spies that got in here. Apparently, security for this whole project was very tight, but when you were smart, it was very loose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It, there's a sort of a conspiracy that Oppenheimer asked for people that he knew that were Soviet spies. I don't believe it. No. I. They had to have been... Uh, of course, he's not going to be able to bring... You just said, like, how many were there? 6,000 6, yeah. toward the end? Those are going to be people bringing in to do other, like, laborous stuff. Well, and Los Alamos is where these bombs were built. It was where the Trinity test, which is coming up, was conducted. So there were two different... I'm going to get boring on you here for a second, but it's cool how they built these things. So the two types of um, bombs they decided to go with, one was called a gun type. The other was an uh, implosion type. So easiest way to explain it, the gun type is pretty self-explanatory. The bomb would be a little bit longer, like a cylinder. At one end, n- near the tail, you would basically have a... First, you would mold the... Sorry. First, you would mold the uranium into a ball, okay? Now, imagine you were to take an ice cream scoop and you were to scoop out, except in the... except Sorry, in, instead of a round, it would be like a cone that you're removing out. It's a hollow point bullet. Kinda, but it's pointed. Hollow you, point cannon, yes. I guess, yeah. So what you do is at the very end of that bomb, the nose... You position that ball of uranium with the empty portion pointing toward the back of it, Mm -hmm. perfectly lined up. At the very back of it, you have an explosive device. Yeah, I don't know if it it was probably TNT that was being used back then. I think it was. And on the end of that, TNT would be the point that you just removed from the uranium, like a bullet, like you said. Mm -hmm. That explosive device would force that uranium to shoot down the basically the barrel of the gun. And it would impact into the uranium. It's basically a uranium penis going into a uranium vagina. <laughs> that's I'm, I'm thinking of the action Should've right now. And that's, there, yeah. that's what it was. So it would go in with such force <laughs> that basically the force it would go in would smash all of the atoms, throwing all of the neutrons, neutrons around, colliding with the nucleuses, breaking them apart, and causing the chain reaction. So these chain reactions are so powerful that with the little boy, the one that was dropped first, it exploded with 1.5% efficiency. Only 1.5% of the material that was fissioned, only 1.5%, sorry, only 1.5% of the material was able to be fissioned before what was containing the bomb separated everything. So basically the casing itself could only hold together so long as 1.5% of this material basically detonated and you still got the destruction over Hiroshima. Well, I think they said that it exploded somewhere around 1400 feet away. Yeah. They found that if they did an airburst, which I was thinking about it from just a scientific standpoint, not a humanity standpoint. When you, like if, um, have you ever seen someone like dive out of the way of a grenade? Yeah. Okay. 
the best thing they say you can do is either is get is get correct is get flat on the ground mm-hmm. because when it explodes all of the force is going to be trying to go at an angle slightly upward you're going to get stuff coming to the side but it's less likely more yeah. stuff is going to be going up well if you detonate it above the ground that explosion is all traveling down and as the force hits the ground it travels outward it travels outward and then that's where you get the mushroom cloud is the reverberation of the energy being fired into the ground and then coming back up and then mushrooming out. Yes. And that's why you see the shock waves like slightly mm-hmm. going up as it's going up into the atmosphere. So 1.5%. Think of punching someone and trying to punch with 1.5%. Like that's, that's what I'm trying to describe. If you have a hundred punch something a hundred percent, that's what it was capable of. Now punch one point, and then that's that's the damage it caused. But it, the damage it caused was just catastrophic. Well, and if they made, I, supposing that this was how it worked logically, if they made that bomb three times thicker, would it have been three times the amount of uranium going off before it separated? So would that make it three times the amount of damage? I, I don't know what the calculation, but I mean, I'm sure there's something to that. Because uh, at this point, it, we all have, not we all have, but America has nuclear bombs. There's many countries, I think, that have nuclear mm-hmm. production. We had to have been able to encapsulate that better to get better than 1.5% mm-hmm. of the spent uranium. Well, so, oh, they did so many tests after. Remember when you see footage of all the tests that happened, like, out in the ocean on the tropical islands? Mm-hmm. That was all them continuing to do testing to find out if they could make them bigger. Those blasts were much larger that you've seen those footage when they do the underwater detonations yeah. are much more powerful than the stuff they used. They're basically just using the new stuff that they, they had the material to make. And with Fat Man, so the shape of Little Boy almost looks like you would think of almost like a traditional bomb, kind of more c- cylinder, mm-hmm. longer. Fat Man Being basically just looked like, like they took the tip of little boy and just smushed it back and it all just expanded like you almost inflated it just a chode yes and the reason the fat man was designed like that is it was an implosion type this is the other type they developed mm-hmm. at los alamos so think of it an implosion type this way you would take that circle of um uranium you wouldn't take anything out of it you would then take that and you would encase that in basically a container with explosives gunpowder or yeah tnt whatever they were mm-hmm. using at that time and basically what you would do is by causing that explosion, you would be forcing everything inward to fission and create that energy and then contain it and, and then it would release outward once it built up enough. It was their other form of detonation. Well, so the little boy was what they consider a kiloton is basically how many thousand um, tons of dynamite it would be. So Kilo little ton. boy. Yeah. So... Little Boy was 20 kilotons, so it was the equivalent of 20,000 tons of TNT. Or is it pounds? 20,000 tons seems like it would make more sense, because 20,000 pounds is just 10 tons. Let's see. Kiloton. A thousand tons. Equal, equivalent to 21,000 tons of TNT. So 20,000 tons of TNT. The Fat Man was 23 kilotons. Now check this out. I don't know. I think they found the implosion type worked better during this. 17% efficiency. I'm going to get back to the information on the blasts 
here in a second, because I feel like if we start talking about that, we're just going to bypass Trinity. And I feel like that's a really important thing to to touch on, because that's essentially when they didn't know what was going to happen. The easiest way I would say to tell the differences between the two bombs, little boy was shooting a pistol at a... A dick into a vagina. Uh, yeah, yeah, shooting a pistol into like a, a gallon of gas. Yeah. Whereas a fat man was literally like a firework surrounding all of the... Yeah, uranium. you ever see those YouTube videos of those fucking rednecks blowing up trionite? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically tannerite, in an old refrigerator, yeah. tannerite in a big fucking refrigerator. Yeah, that's basically what it was. So through the joint work of all the scientists at Los Alamos, it actually resulted in the first, the world's first nuclear explosion. It actually took place at this place called Alamogordo, New Mexico, on uh, July 16th, 1945. And Oppenheimer was the one that gave it the nickname uh, or codename Trinity and said that it was from uh, like John Don's Holy Sonnets or something like that. So again, he's mixing in philosophy and that kind of stuff with with his research. Um, well, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Like it's it has mm-hmm. a religious meaning to it. And I, I want to say that the area that they tested it in had something, it was like Trinity Ranch or something like that that they may have tested it on. I, I don't know if he ended up naming his ranch that. No, his his ranch was named the Hot Dog Ranch. It was named oh, Cal- that's right. Caliente, or Perro Caliente. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, he had a pretty good lay of New Mexico. And I think when they were choosing Los Alamos, there were a couple different spots that they showed him. Mm-hmm. And he just said, no, this people are going to feel too claustrophobic in between these mountain ranges. He actually found Los Alamos Plateau. Or it was a... That's right. Uh, not a plateau. It was something... So, oh, oh it was salt a mesa. Flat. Like mesa or salt flat or something. Yeah. So uh, he knew of this place before, and there was actually a school named Los Alamos there, mm-hmm. and that's where they adapted They the took name. over the school and mm-hmm. everything. That's right. Okay. So just a little information on the test. So basically what they did is um, if you've ever seen any type of, like, footage of nuclear bombs going off or anything, awesome. sometimes you'll see, like, the guys kind of in the bunkers through the glass with the goggles on and everything like that, all the armored guys. That was basically what happened here. So... I don't know the distance between the blast and when people were watching it and everything, but... It happened at 4 a.m., so it was dark. Yeah. So they had, um, basically, they didn't want to do just detonating on the ground, because that's what I think they figured that it would be more damaging. Uh They wanted to try to recreate something. So they took it up in like a 100-foot tower, and I think they dropped it a little bit, and then when it got a few feet down, it exploded. So they, you know, they interviews and stuff like that have come out with like the scientists that watched it and everything. They're like, what did you think was going to happen? And like, we didn't really know, honestly, they're like, we had general ideas of what would occur about the energy output that it could have and all that kind of stuff. But we didn't really kind of know what we'd be looking at. There were some fears apparently that somehow the chain reaction and the heat and temperature would set the atmosphere on fire. And yeah, could- no, no, no. There was a small percentage belief that this test would result in the desolation of mankind. Yeah, it would set the, the atmosphere and, and destroy the ozone, and we'd be bombarded with just radiation and kill everyone. So uh, we made a smart choice with a we small fucking percentage. Gambled. We gambled. That's more than a gamble. Even one, 0.1% of ruining of destroying humanity? Yeah, that's yeah. that's a big gamble. Yeah. So after the explosion, which everyone's probably familiar with, they said basically... Oppenheimer was kind of reflecting on it, and he said, if the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. 
So that's what the explosion made him feel. They said there when it went off, there was a just a bright, blinding light. Of course, they were all wearing eye protection. They knew that that would probably be an aspect of it. Um, but yeah, they at that point he kind of went back and also uh, noted something else from yeah the Bhagavad Gita, and it translated into "I am become death, the destroyer of worlds," and. You can read that two ways. If you were reading that, and I think if like a war, you know, a general had said that in the heat of battle, that would be like, I'm, I'm unbeatable. Like it would be in a positive way, like a rageful way. And the way he said it was basically that he kind of realized what he had unleashed. He unleashed destruction on... A scale that couldn't have been comprehended. No. He he literally was able, by saying the destroyer of worlds, I mean, that's that's literally him just understanding that he has helped create something that will just wipe out entire sections of it's the It's like world. it's not even, it's not even that he's doing it. And he's like, oh, this is going to have, like, this could have applications for the military to use. It was created for that sole yeah, purpose. Th- that was the sole purpose at that point. That's a a heavy crown to wear. I don't know. I I give this dude a lot of credit for being able to live with his abilities that he created this. One of the guys that was kind of in charge of it actually ended up uh, hanging himself. Uh, Allegedly. Outside a 16-story window of a hotel, he hung himself, and then the sash he was using broke, and he fell to his death. Seems kind of odd that you would hang yourself outside the window not to mention on the uh, windowsill, there like were scratch stuff, marks. Yeah, scratch marks are like signs of a struggle, which they were like, well, he was probably just kicking around when he was strangling himself before the sash broke or whatever it was. I don't think so. All right, before we actually go into the applications and use of uh, these weapons and kind of what the end result is on that, uh, I got to make a pee. Okay. All right. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. All right. Okay, so getting to the actual result of all of this. Um, Prior to actually utilizing uh, Little Boy and Fat Man, there was a letter sent to, um, I guess, the Japanese high command, whatever you Uh consider. And it was called the Potsdam Declaration. And basically it was asking for their, I believe it was an unconditional surrender. And basically kind of the... A gist of the letter was that, like, if you don't surrender now, we're going to... And it didn't describe what they were going to use. It says we're going to, you know... At this point, also, Germany is no longer a threat. Japan is still just holding out. That was sort of kind of another interesting thing that I found in this whole research that I did was they were almost disappointed that Germany had surrendered because they wanted to use it after they had developed it so Mm -hmm. much. That since Germany had surrendered, they had to use it somewhere 
And it was almost like the brainchild was to finish off Japan so they didn't so we didn't have to commit more troops. Like yeah, like yeah, we can test these where people are gonna be paying attention, but if we don't use these things, people aren't really gonna know what they can do. Yeah, it was like they were looking for that's horrible. That sounds horrible as I say it out loud, but that's got it had to have been part of the rationale. That's part of where I fall on the horrible of this is it's I don't know. I, I've come to kind of, when you and I talked about it, that this was sort of a necessary evil, but it also feels like this was something that maybe we pushed a little too hard. Yeah, I mean, the, that Potsdam Declaration that was sent over, I think on the 26th of July of um, 45, and basically kind of what I was getting at, the alternative to them not surrendering, rendering was basically prompt and utter destruction, and they just ignored it. So I believe too, wasn't there a letter sent to, cause we're out of FDR at this point. We're into Eisenhower. No, not Eisenhower. Hoover, Hoover wasn't it? Um, no. God damn it. Who see. was it? Who is the next president up? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Who took it? Was it his V? It was his VP, Truman. right? Truman. That that's right. Yeah. So, we've crossed into a, a second presidency where there's checks and balances to say, Hey, do we want to do this? Do we not want to do this? Truman was for it, obviously. And I don't know if it was between little boy and fat man, or if it was pre little boy, but there was a letter sent to Truman from the scientists urging him not to use the atomic bomb because of the massive destruction but in the way to Truman, they classified it or something like that to sweep it under the rug. So Truman never ended up seeing the actual letter that was sent from the scientists. Hmm. That, like, I mean, that would make sense. It just seems so crazy that the people that developed it weren't allowed a voice in the government to say, hey, this is a pretty oh, as soon serious as, as soon deal. as those fucking generals saw that explosion, they were like, good job, guys. We're going to need a couple more. Don't worry about what we're doing with them. This is where I equivalated it to another movie. This is Jurassic World and Velociraptors. Oh, yeah, when they try to weaponize them. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Chris Pratt and his buddy also Yeah, except the Velociraptors. It's like the Velociraptors were bred with the intention of being weapons, and then you're all of a sudden now surprised when they're going to be used as weapons. Yeah, I just, I think that, pretty much falls into what this is though because they knew once trinity was yeah. dropped that this was going to be used for sure for oh, a yeah. bomb. well back in 43 the united states united kingdom um signed the quebec Act agreement and it basically stipulated that if nuclear weapons were you know a viable option that they couldn't be used against another country without mutual consent so i think did we actually we asked them about it and again here's the thing too that i think kind of gets lost is Really, the only two people that were, I think Russia might have been fighting Japan a little bit on their west or on their eastern front, but really the two major forces that had gone against Japan and suffered the losses were the British and the Americans. More so, the Americans. Yeah, the Way British. So. You know, the British had their all their people on like um, in Australia and everything like that. They also lost um, people like in the, I want to say like the Indian Ocean or something like that to Japanese forces. So. It would make sense because the Indian Ocean, I think, is the route that you would go from England to Australia. Mm-hmm. So they had to have that as a defensible area. Yeah, that's true. So basically, again, after the Potsdam Declaration was ignored, um, 
they decided to kind of put the plan into action. So the little boy bomb, except for the uranium in it, that was ready at the beginning of May 45. And there were two uranium-235 components, that hollow syndrome, uh, the projectile, and then the, the penis in the vagina. I'm just going to keep referencing that. I don't know why I tried to get fancy. And basically, it was completed on the 15th of June and ready to go. So the projectile and eight bomb pre-assemblies, basically partially built bombs without like the powder charges and everything, those were sent to a uh, place in California and then those were loaded aboard the USS Indianapolis, which the Indianapolis has a crazy fucking story in itself. Yeah, very much so. So Indianapolis, um, it's a battleship. It's set sail and arrives on Tinian on the 26th of July. Spoiler alert, four days later after the Indianapolis is on its way back, it's tor- torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. It's sunk. Really? You didn't know that? Uh-uh. Dude, the USS Indianapolis, we're doing a, a discussion on this. The USS, eh, USS Indianapolis is one of the craziest fucking stories. After it got torpedoed and went down, like almost like 70% of the guys were killed by sharks. <laughs> it was Holy fucking shit. nuts. Remember the, do you remember Jaws? Yeah. Remember the scene in Jaws where Quint and all of them are down in his boat and they're drinking and talking about stories? Uh-huh. Oh. And he's like, you were on the Indianapolis? He's like... Uh, he's like 700 men went in the water and he's talking about how the sharks came at night and stuff. Huh? So that, <laughs> that was actually set. Can you imagine if they would have got torpedoed, you know, on the way there, how yeah. things could have been changed? Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that was loaded, that was put together and that was loaded onto, I want to say that was loaded onto the Enola Gay. Yeah. I was just trying to do a little research. Uh, I can't figure out why they named it Enola Gay. It was named after a woman. Was it? Yeah, her name was Enola. That's why. That's who's painted on the nose, man. Really? One of the guys knew a girl named... Yeah, they did that with women all the time, like Betty's and all that kind of stuff. They paint them for girls back home or USO girls that stopped by. That was a big thing. So Hiroshima was actually... Do you, do, do you say Hiroshima or Hiroshima? Hiroshima. So Hiroshima was the primary target of actually the first one on uh, the 6th of August. And then the alternates were a place called uh, Kukura and then Nagasaki. What's up? Uh, I just saw an old picture of what an Olegay looked like. Oh, it was actually named after a dude's mom. Yeah, she's a scary looking Yeah, he was the pilot. (sighs) So he took off from Tinian. And nobody, again, nobody fucking knows about this. This is the most top secret of the most top fucking secret. That's why the USS Indianapolis took so long for people to get rescued. Because it was on a fucking secret mission. Yeah, there was no no heads up to anybody. So it ends up taking off from Tinian, and it's a six-hour flight time to Japan. And it was accompanied by two other B-29s. These are the ones that were the more expensive project than the Manhattan Project during the war. And basically the two other ones, they carried like instrumentation, film crews, basically people... the Enolgate, it's one job. Drop the fucking bomb, get out. The other ones, their job was to do like readings, research on the blast, that kind of stuff and what they could gather. And basically, when they arrived over the target, they had clear visibility. And this guy named Parsons, he was in command of the mission, arms the bomb in flight. The reason they didn't arm it beforehand is because if they ran into problems on takeoff and crashed, they could have had a... A detonation. Yes, that would have been bad. Because he'd witnessed four B-29s crash and burn and take off. 
He's like, I ain't arming this shit until we're almost at the target. So another guy, uh, this guy named uh, Morris Jepson, he removes the safety devices 30 minutes before reaching the target area. And then on kind of the night of the 5th and 6th of August, their uh, early warning radar detected the approach of the aircraft. And um, I don't know if they actually routed anything to stop them. I would imagine that if they picked them up on radar... Hmm. They would only have a very small window to be able to do that, though. Because once that bomb is dropped, like we said, it's not just the force hitting the Earth, it's the power and the waves. I don't know how in the hell the Enola Gay was able to get clear of the drop to be able to not feel the reverberations even that high in no, the it air. Conf- it, no, the pilot said that it, um, when it detonated, it felt like someone was shooting at the plane because it was jerking oh, by the shock right, waves. Oh, that's right, yeah. So they even felt it up there. So any sort of defense, had they not gotten there on time before the drop, they just would have been wiped out. I don't think these guys were probably present at the Trinity test. So just kind of curious, these pilots... Yeah, that's what I was trying to look up. I can't find the name of the ones maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I'm just thinking to myself, they've never probably seen what one of these things can do and how oh, high God, it no. goes. So, I mean, they're just going off instructions that they're provided. Like, hey, um, little thing, once you drop that, you're gonna want to climb like a motherfucker and just bank the fuck out of this yes. thing. Just get away as as quickly as possible, or as soon as you slow way down. And as soon as this thing is out your bomb bay doors, just fucking punch it and get, I think that would make more sense mm-hmm. is to try to get forward oh, yeah. and not, yeah. So. Cause you're not going to be able to climb nearly fast enough to be able to get out of the force that's blowing straight up. No. But I mean, they drop this thing, it explodes. The total radius of destruction was a mile in, in a full circle with fires resulting and spreading in a 4.4 square square mile area. And in this area, there were 80,000 people that were just instantly killed? Yeah. That's a... I'm a, trying to remember what the area was that it completely vaporized all of the buildings. But, um, yeah, if you Google uh, Hiroshima after the bomb was dropped, it, it it's leveled. I mean... There's no other word for it. it. It basically, I mean, you can see the squares of the foundations for the buildings, but it, no. it just vaporized people. Mm-hmm. Like it, the thought of something that's strong enough to just vaporize an entire human being, which I know there's things on a smaller scale, but to just instantly kill seventy thousand people, like that's a a, a tough or eighty thousand people. It's just a tough thing to try to comprehend. Yeah, it was around thirty percent of the population. They were killed by the blast and the resultant firestorm. And another 70,000 were injured. And that's, I'm sure they probably factored in long-term effects because on the second one, which like I told you, I didn't know it was on a separate day. They started finding that people were developing the sicknesses from the actual radiation that the bomb blast set off. Yeah, it was, uh, they, so you could, after the bomb had gone off, they said that people could come into the area and not develop this, but it was the resultant directly of the radiation mm-hmm. from the initial blast itself. Yeah, when they were able to actually go in and, you know, 
take a look, Japanese officials actually said that 69% of the buildings were destroyed. Just like, here, look at this. Here's the, here's the fucking picture. Look at that. Yeah. It's, it looks like a fucking farmer's field. nothingness. Yeah. Looks like the goddamn Dust Bowl. But, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail. Like, just even looking at... Yeah, looking at the images and stuff like that of, like, the the people that were burned and everything, it's putting it all aside from a human standpoint and everything. Um, it, it's, it's tough to look at and wildly impressive though. Oh yeah. That's, that's what, that's, what's really conflicting about it. And the, here's the other thing too. And I think me and you kind of touched based on this when we were texting is there was a lot of different reasons why this was done, but there were a lot of reasons that were never released and I think the line, and it makes a lot of sense, and it makes sense why this was the thing that was provided as the reason. When they were going over estimates of possible casualties for what an invasion of Japan, because that's the only way that Japan was going to surrender. We had seen how they had fought over just like the little islands mm-hmm. that they had overtaken that weren't even you know, their territory. And then we saw what started happening when we started getting onto their actual Japanese home islands like Iwo Jima and stuff like that. And saw that they were willing to just go down to the last man, woman, and child, especially if you invaded their home, you know, the home island. There were 10, I'm trying to think of what the operation was called. They already started planning for it. Yeah. Early, early stages of the, of the Pacific campaign. They knew that that was the end result, so they had planned for it. But because they were also able to reroute all these forces from Europe, they weren't going to be like, hey, guys, go home. They're like, hey, guess what? I know you just got done fighting this war, but there's another one going on way over here, and we're just going to ship your happy asses over there. Unless you had enough points, which was a good thing. If you had enough points and you'd been through enough either campaigns or battles or drops and stuff, you got to go return home. stateside. Um, but they said upwards for the ally casualties in order to invade and essentially take away the military power of Japan would be close to a million allied casualties. Now that's not even to say how many Japanese, not only soldiers, but civilians would also be casualties in that as well. I don't know what those estimated figures would be. They would have to be more than half. We would have to win. Well, yeah, and to and I mean, you're trying to take over someone in in their homeland. They're gonna fight till like I don't know. That that's kind of where the moral quandary of this whole thing ends up coming in for me is with the justification that you could save a million lives just on the Allied side, and then let's even just equal it out and say a million lives on the Japanese side between soldiers and civilians, things like that. Or, and I don't know how you would even estimate what the projected cat, you would just have to say, well, this is the population of the city. This is what we think it's going to do. So we figure roughly this many people are going to get killed. Is it the concept of you kill a hundred and is ends up being like a hundred or 110,000 between the two cities to save 2 million? About 140,000. Is it, is it that simple? Or, yeah, 120,000. Is the argument that simple? I, this is where my human side of the brain kicks in, is you can't quantify 
the amount of damage that's done to the survivors of this whole ordeal. Because, I mean, you have 60,000 injured in the second, which I'm sure we'll talk about because that was very interesting. 70,000 injured in the first. You don't know what's coming out of that. And we didn't study this. Like we just said, when they dropped the Trinity, they thought that it there was a small chance that it was going to end humanity, not to mention anybody that would be in the blast radius that would survive. Like, are you going to birth a three-toed child? What's, what's the outcome? Like, what's the... Well, and the other thing, too, you're also rolling the dice. If you thought that there was a small percentage that it would set the atmosphere on fire... And you're like, okay, that one didn't do it. Yeah. As you continue yes. to use it, you're still rolling that fucking dice. Every single time. It's like the 99, what is it, condoms or 98, 90, 90, yeah. 98, 99. It's probably less than that, actually, if you think about it. Don't say that. Okay, anyway. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that means that like, if you go back in your head and you see that, you're like, I've had sex more than 100 times, which means there's one that like at some point could have possibly gotten through. Uh, yeah, I, I just... I feel like we didn't do enough research as to what the long-term effects of this could be. We and didn't. They, I guess they figured they didn't have time. There's well, a reason why we don't hang out in Chernobyl. And Chernobyl was a nuclear leak, and this was a nuclear explosion. Mm-hmm. And it, just the whole thought process of what this could turn into seems like it was very rushed out of the way to be able to drop these bombs. Well, after the Hiroshima bombing, so Truman issues a statement basically announcing the new weapon. He's like, we may be grateful to Providence. Basically saying that, like, thank God the German atomic bomb project had failed the United States and its allies. He's like, we spent $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history and won. And then basically told Japan, is like, if you don't, if they do not now accept our terms, because after this, they were like, you sure you don't want to surrender? He's like, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the likes of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen, and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. And basically, this was widely broadcast speech and was picked up by Japanese news agencies. Here's the other thing, too, and I think this is kind of an important part of what maybe happened with the second bombing. We talked about this um, on Midway, and I think we talked about this on the Pearl Harbor, touched on it. So when things would go right for Japan in the war, they would notify the the public about it. Mm -hmm. When things would go poorly, it would be mums the word, or they would spin it. It was kind of like Korea TV, how everything is just rosy and they've won the World Cup, you know, the last fucking 27 years, and they win all the Olympic medals and all that good stuff. They have their own fake, fake news. I think it's everywhere. Honestly, I I don't think that we report on a lot of the failures of strategic things that our military No, does. I don't think we do. But this is something that like, okay, now imagine this just happened on one of the cities in your country. But again, the public is not super aware of this. Again, this state TV are the only people that could probably be covering this, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be releasing it to the public. So that could also kind of stand a reason why a lot of these people are probably like, even if they heard this broadcast, they're like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Like, what did they, I didn't hear anything for what they did. I'm just glad that they gave them a, an ample amount of time between the first bombing and the second bombing to really think about this. Is it three days? Yeah. 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 All of three days, 72 hours, I think is what three days is. Yeah. We gave them 72 hours to think this whole thing over. Okay. 
I I get that. I'll just you know what I'll play devil's advocate just because I think it'll be a good discussion. I don't know how you know what we probably had to have known that the Japanese public um, was not really aware of what was going on. Yeah. So in that scenario, we're not we're not doing this against them. Although we are doing this against them, we're basically the military knows the Japanese command structure knows we just did this. This is this is us saying like, hey, we're fucking serious. Like, and do you think part of it also was like they can't have more than one of these, right? Like, they probably didn't understand how it occurred. Do you think they understand that this was like harnessing the power of the atom, or did they just think like they've somehow figured out how to make dynamite like super powerful or some shit? I would imagine since they were a part of the axis with Germany and Italy, that there was some intelligence shared as to what a nuclear weapon was. Mm -hmm. Because like we said, the Germans did were in development or in some form of theory or thought of this to where I feel like that would have been shared. So they had to have had some idea, but once they saw the destruction, they, there's no way to be able to go from a theory to seeing it practiced in practice and happen to really understand that that I think is what was going on. Yeah. And so, so the city in Nagasaki had been one of the largest seaports in Southern Japan. And of course, being in South Japan, that would be an area in which we would probably be invading. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're going to weaken it up and if it's got a military presence and everything, you do that. Um, it was of great wartime importance basically because all of its industrial activity. That's also why some of these targets were picked is they had military strongholds or like industrial capabilities. There were cities that Truman said were not even negotiable. Kyoto, Tokyo, I think wait, Tokyo actually might've been on the list and then got moved, but I know Kyoto because that Jesus was where the price that was what that was on the list. Tokyo. I don't think Tokyo was what it was back then. As what it is now. Kyoto was where like the Imperial Palace and all that kind of stuff was. But do you know what I assume Tokyo had a much larger population at that point. Correct. I think I don't know if it was civilians. on the list. I don't know. I, I thought I read Tokyo, but maybe I read it on the list that of, of no goes. I know Nagasaki was on the list because basically it had been bombed on a small scale like five times prior to that. And they were trying to hit like the docks and ships and everything. Um what uh what was the significance of Kokura? So Kokura was basically the preferred target over Nagasaki. And I think it also had like a military presence and everything. So it was a part of their military system. Yeah, that's it. and you know, that's that's the big thing too, is I think that they were picking these targets strategically because they were like, you know, part of you has got to be thinking like, let's make this, you know, we gotta try to make it if we're gonna use these, we gotta try to do as much damage to their war industry as possible mm -hmm. as well. So well, it wasn't because if they don't surrender, which that I don't think was ever a plan because after they dropped uh fat boy, after they dropped the second one, mm -hmm. there were plans for like seven other atomic bombs to be dropped in the next two months after that first one. And they wouldn't surrender. I mean, part of you has got to be thinking these people are, you've seen some pretty fucking crazy things out of these people so yeah. far. Yeah, These oh, people yeah. are willing to just dr fly their planes mm -hmm. into fucking ships. True. So at that point, you're like, after the first one, that's got to be a shock to the system, being like, they still won't fucking give up. All right, get the fucking kitchen sink ready. for. We're going to fucking throw it at these guys. So they end up, what was the date that 
boxcar took off? Uh, August 9th. Was okay. So August 9th, a plane called Boxcar, flown by um, this guy named Sweeney and his crew, uh, take off from Tinian again. And Kokura was the primary target, and Nagasaki was the second. So basically, the plan was the almost identical as the Hiroshima mission. Two B-29s flying an hour ahead as weather scouts, and then two additional ones for instruments, photography, things like that. Oh, um, well, that could also be part of it. When you had that squadron flying and they're all the exact same plane, you it's like three-card Monty. You don't know which one's carrying that's true. an atomic bomb. Yeah, that's also true. And they also sent – I don't know how – I mean, I could see why you would send the planes over to scout for weather. But then aren't you just kind of waking them up and be like, oh, shit, there's planes flying over us? Yeah. And then now or later, your plane flies over. Um, anyway, though, so basically what they did, though, is Sweeney took off with the weapon already armed. But he still had, like, a some electrical safety plug. So he's like, fucking, I'm feeling saucy. <laughs> Um, they ended up, I think one of the planes ended up having to turn back, not theirs. And hold on, let's see. Oh, he made a fuel transfer or something like that. And then he, he could still fly. Basically they got to Kokura and there was too much cloud cover. Lucky. That's as simple as it is, man. So those same wind gods that were protecting him against the Mongolians back for the the samurai episode. They were they were looking out for the people of Kokura. Mm-hmm. So they reroute to Nagasaki and end up dropping Fat Man over Nagasaki. Um, Nagasaki was a little bit different as far as like the layout of the land, and it actually kind of helped contain some of the blast and the casualties and everything because of the hills that were close. It was kind of built within the mountains. They blocked a lot of the heat and the shockwave and everything. So I think it was, how many people ended up dying in Nagasaki? 40,000. 40,000. 60,000 of them were injured, which odd that it seems like the first, well, and I guess like you said, with the the mountains maybe taking up some of the blast radius, Mm -hmm. And it could have been that Nagasaki was built around the mountain, so it was much more spread out. But the fact that there were less people that died and more people injured, or I guess right about the same as the first one, that's a a crazy thought to know that even having a mountain range, whatever, to absorb the shock in there, that there were still that many people that were injured just from the... Yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time trying to grasp. It's, it's, I, I really think it's almost like whatever we can fathom, it's much worse. Because we've never been able, aside from watching something on a screen, we've never witnessed anything with that kind of like power or force. Uh-uh. If you've never seen like a volcano erupt or you've never been... Like, think of it this way. The most we've been as far as like... And I would consider this like... It's not an act of nature, but it's so powerful, it almost feels like that, right? Yeah, this is like a a controlled earthquake. Yeah. Except and firestorm, for all the shock waves are coming yeah, through and the volcano air, too. Blowing up at the same time. Um, yeah, like you said, after that, they expected to have another Fat Man atomic bomb ready by August 19th, three more in September, and a further three in October. So they were already just fucking lining these things up. And basically until the 9th of August, which that one was going to be ready on the 19th of August, uh, Japan's war cancel still insisted on its four conditions for surrender (laughs) until the 9th of August. And then I think finally, like during a meeting, um, 
this guy named Suzuki went to like the palace to report on the outcome of like the meeting and basically informed him that this guy, other guy informed him that the emperor had agreed to hold an imperial conference and basically gave a strong indication that the emperor would consent to surrender on the condition that um, it's called Kokutai, which I believe it would be still the recognition of the um, Japanese system of government. Like it would allow him to like stay in power. It's like an Alfred plea. Yeah, pretty much. Like you, you're going to go ahead and admit that, or not admit that you're guilty, but admit that there's enough evidence to find you guilty, but you still want to maintain that you're not guilty. Yeah, pretty much. And he, and the emperor never got charged with war crimes. Despite being, despite being the, here's the other thing too, is I wonder how much of that he actually, because again, I think, you know, the Japanese military command probably was calling most of the shots and everything. The emperor wasn't that old, I don't think. Well, and as we sussed out in uh, just a scratch of the surface, another Japanese uh, topics that we've done, the emperor sort of in those times was more of a figurehead, like a ceremonial a, almost yes, role. Yeah. yeah, almost he was almost like their deity. Mm-hmm. That's what he pretty much was. Yeah. He was their deity at that point more than their like governmental leader. So on August 12th, he finally, the emperor finally informs the imperial family of his decision to surrender. And like, they're another like seven days away from this other bomb being ready. And obviously we've already displayed that we're, you know, willing to use them. Two times. But basically they end up surrendering before we're going to use that one. Um, And then... I think a few weeks later, we ended up selling the USS Missouri into Tokyo Bay and signing the unconditional friend of the Japanese on the deck. Just an absolute wild turn of events to happen so quickly. And that's, uh, like I said... 39 to 45. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, this was a, a rate of speed that I don't think the government's ever really pushed something. And yes, it was wartime, so it was something that needed to happen in order to it was a means to an end but it's just a crazy fast means to an end at that point well i think it shook up a lot of the scientists that worked on it oh without a doubt i know oppenheimer had a meeting with eisenhower i think at one point was it truman that he said get that son of a bitch out of here yeah yeah, yeah he, because he walked in there and he told them that he felt like he had blood on his hands and Truman obviously didn't like that. And so after his, the meeting, he told like Oppenheimer's like CO, commanding officer, he's like, I don't ever want to see that son of a bitch again. And then when did he end up giving him the Medal of Merit? That same year. That same year? Yeah. But it, it all kind of gets tricky because Oppenheimer, he was let in under scrupulous means being a communist. This whole time, our old dickhead friend, J. Edgar Hoover, that we had talked about before, um, he's collecting a dossier of all of the questionable communist ties that Oppenheimer had. He turned it over to, I think it was the, not the district, uh, the Department Court of, of Un-American or... Affairs, oh, some okay. shit like that. Something that existed back then. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was like a, I don't know, it was a, a governmental... Group it was a communist watch group, probably, or something like that. Yeah, it was like a Congress board or whatever. But 
he turns over all this evidence to them. They bring him into court. They bring his brother in. They bring his sister-in-law in. All the communists? Yes. Start to tie into these communist beliefs that he had. And Hoover used this to completely suspend his security clearance. He you know. His his usefulness at that point didn't outweigh what they felt like the headaches that he was causing for him because he was very staunch about coming out and saying, "Hey, we need to make sure that like we never get in a situation to use these weapons again." Well, and he wanted to go ahead and actually make rules against use of nuclear weapons ever again. Not to mention, we went ahead and pogo sticks off of the atomic bomb into the hydrogen bomb, which they asked him to build, and he's like, "No." Yeah, he he was. St- very against the, I think it was called the super is what it was, but it was a hydrogen based bomb that was, that's just, what you see in those underwater explosions. That's why those are so fucking powerful. Well, and it's well, at the same time, like, do you think he's just looking at this guy going, why, why do you, you see something? what the atomic bomb did? Yeah. What, what scenario do you imagine happening where you need fucking, you can already make a ton of these. I've already showed you. It's not like you're going to forget how to fucking make them. We had seven more in the works. Yeah. At that point. Like you have seven, like, isn't that enough? No, I'm not going to help you build something fucking more powerful so you can kill more people. The next time someone steps out of line, like I can, that's a completely understandable moral decision. Oh yeah. And uh, that was part of the thing that he said was like, this is, we did an atomic bomb that killed tens of thousands of people. A hydrogen bomb is going to kill millions of people. It's It will be the destroyer of worlds. We didn't even drop them on the places that had the most people that we could have. Mm-hmm. Imagine it, what would happen if you dropped one of these on fucking New York or, or someone, someone in else. In succession, we had three bombers that all dropped at the same time and then left. Yeah, a mile apart from each other. So yeah. It just, yeah. Not to mention all that frequency and action that's bouncing around between multiples. Like that's, it's incredible that we had such a hunger for the ultimate Trump card that we wanted to just build something even bigger. And then we wanted to outdo the Soviet Union because we were concerned that they were also developing the same thing. And then what do you do when you both have Trump cards? Well, I'm going to get more Trump cards than you do. Uh, Yeah, you just, it's a nuclear buildup that we see play out today. Proliferation. Isn't that what it is? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's an it's it, it's escal it's the loss of escalation is what it is. Well, eventually on the twenty first in uh, fifty three of December, uh, Oppenheimer security clearance is suspended after uh, old J Edgar decides he works for the Soviet Union, despite the fact <laughs> that he is like th- one of the most crucial components in developing it for us first. Yeah, he was working for the Soviet Union. Everyone was fucking working for the Soviet Union, according to Hoover. Well, like they said, there were hundreds of Soviet spies that they ended up rooting out. Mm-hmm. They just brought all this information back over to the Soviet Union in order to start their nuclear program. Yeah, which didn't take long. No. I, and so they caught up rather quickly. And we did branch out from there into starting to use nuclear energy for power plants and things like that to develop it in a more less militaristic It still circled way. back to fucking using it to power aircraft carriers and shit like that. Yeah, it was basically a way that they could not need to use, not be relying on oil or fuel, because mm-hmm. if that ever ran short, we would need a way to power these things. Yeah. And it just, it's also wild how it branched off finally. It was like, we've talked about so many times, we talked about in this episode, it was developed for the military, then it was developed for the public in order to help them. But the main mean of all this kind of stuff is always the military starts out with that technology. Mm-hmm. And 
they used it for some just some diabolical shit. Yeah, just crazy. But again, I I don't know. Like, was it? I I don't I can't make that decision. I wasn't around back then. I can't say it wasn't necessary. I can just simply go off the fact that I do believe there would have been a lot of casualties had we tried to take that that island. Yeah, it's probably it's probably a much easier realization to come to when you're not on the receiving end of it. Well, and I'm this is an opinion on my account coming from somebody who would never serve in the military just because I'm kind of a pussy. So I I can't be making these decisions of all this loss of life for soldiers. It's it's sad when one of them dies. The thought of losing a million of them is kind of hard to calculate on like an emotional scale well even like and and dial in this too with it just to kind of take this into account you're not just like you've already been at war for like four years at this point you're fucking like the public is if 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 this was strictly based on public opinion they're like hey this many people are going to die but we got a couple bombs we can drop public opinion be like fucking drop it Plus we we want, s- we're tired of fucking fighting. We're tired of, like, burying our kids. Yeah, fucking drop it. We saw the loss of life in Pearl Harbor. So... But, I mean, even, for, like, I don't... It was this, you know, of course, Pearl Harbor being the single greatest loss of life up to that point for, like, an attack. It was just kind of like... Yeah, there was... It, that definitely was a factor, is the revenge factor of doing this. We were probably a little pissed off that we didn't have a chance to, like you said, use it against Germany, and we were like, well... We're using it. We just went revenge times fifty. Yeah, and then kind of, kind of a bummer for old Oppenheimer. Um, he was a chain smoker throughout his entire life, and uh, finally caught up to him. He got throat cancer in like '65, and not sure how cancer surgery, how effective that was, but he underwent some unsuccessful treatments on it. Uh, fell into a coma in February '67, and basically died at his home in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, February at 62. Thus comes the end of the tale of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's sort of a, maybe an interesting thing that I sort of put together was prior to um, nuclear fission being discovered and all that, they didn't have a radiology treatment for cancer. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if going through all of the nuclear things that Oppenheimer did and the advancement in nuclear technology, I wonder if radiation that came from some of his research was also used to try to slow down his throat cancer. If at that point it had been used in that manner. Well, yeah, we're talking a decade plus. Of yeah. Research. I'm just wondering how how far does something that is initially used as a military application, how long does it take to filter down to be used essentially or even be researched as a health application? Like the the initial reason it was designed was the exact opposite. It was to kill people. And now you're trying to have to be like, hmm, how can we use this to help people live? Because all you've seen off, off radiation at this point is people like with horrible disfigurements and burns and all that kind of stuff. So maybe it wasn't used by then. It would be weirdly poetic if it was mm-hmm. that, that tried to save his life and everything. But it would be 
more tragic if that technology came around a couple of years after he died. <laughs> yeah, 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 that would. I didn't think about if it came around afterwards, but just to think that there could have been like he was sitting in getting radiation treatment, thinking like this is around because of the technology that I yeah. create. Like motherfucker, yeah. just kind of looking at what he's doing. This is me. All right, man. You got anything else on that? No. Uh, excited to see the movie. Hell yeah. All right, guys. See you later. Please. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.